We'll hear argument next to number 001187, David R. McCune versus Robert G. Lyle. Mr. McAllister. Mr. Chief Justice, and may it please the Court, choices have consequences, but they nonetheless remain choices. The mere withdrawal of prison privileges, such as a personal television or how much an inmate may spend at the canteen, privileges which are not part of an inmate's sentence and to which an inmate has no legal entitlement, does not amount to constitutional compulsion in violation of the Fifth Amendment. Certainly not when the reason for the withdrawal of those privileges is the inmate's failure to comply with an unquestionably legitimate treatment requirement that he accept responsibility for his offenses. The, the problem, though, is he's, he's forced, in effect, uh, uh, to, to confront the, the, the treatment uh, possibility. It's not an option. I mean, it, the tough part of the case for me, I think, is the fact uh, that this is, this is not a scheme, as I understand the federal scheme to be, uh, in which the inmate says, I want to take advantage of this uh, treatment program. Uh, this is a scheme uh, in which the state says, you're going to take advantage of it, and if you don't take advantage of it, including the, 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 the admissions and the reports of other offenses and so on, uh, you're going to lose substantial privileges. That's, that, to me, is the tough part of the case. That's true, Justice Souter, and our program does differ from the federal program in that respect. But it is still a choice for Mr. Lyle. He does not have to incriminate himself in any way. His refusal to participate is not at all incriminating. And what we're talking about in terms of what he may lose here are, are really relatively mild incentives within the prison. I, I thought that the participation required the prisoner to uh, describe previous offenses that if he, he, participates. he may have been committed. If he, that he may have committed if he participates. Right. But what I'm saying is if he simply refuses to participate, there's no incrimination whatsoever, nothing drawn from that. He but, simply — But what happens if he refuses? Is he put in a different type of confinement with different terms and conditions? He can be, yes. And he will certainly — with our privilege incentive level system, as the inmates work their way through, they have more privileges, and they're in the nature of how much they can spend. Well, everybody in goes in presumably at the same level. You're they started in — screened, and you start at the same level of control. Yes. Now, the prisoner says, no, I don't want to participate in that program. Does that mean that he stays in that opening level, or is he then — potentially put in something even more severe than that. The Kansas regulations say if an inmate is, is recommended for a, a, this treatment program and he refuses, he goes from level three to level one. Mr. Lyle's at level three because when we adopted this incentive scheme several years ago, we grandfathered in all the inmates at the highest level. So we started them out with the, with the level three privileges, which is the highest they can achieve in prison, and it was then theirs to lose by not complying with rules or committing disciplinary infractions and so forth. So he was at level three, and when he refused to participate, he then comes down to level one. Is that where he is today? Well, he's actually not, because he got an injunction against, in this case, against us mm -hmm. actually carrying out this program. In so is future, he still incarcerated? Yes, he is. And he's at level three? At level three, yes. In the future, uh, what's at issue is, is not being deprived of benefits you already have, but of not giving you benefits that you don't have. 
Well, and the reason he's being chopped down from three to one was that, that, that he was grandfathered. He was grandfathered. In the future, he would, he would simply not make it from one to two and from two to three if he didn't go into the program. Very possibly. I mean, very possibly. Because there, there's been some dispute between you and the other side as to whether this is uh, simply the denial of a benefit or a punishment. And uh, I'm not sure there's a whole lot of difference, but uh, — uh, and in the context of a For the prison. grandfathered people, it looks more like a punishment. You're chopping them down to one, but for uh, — in the future, at least, uh, he just doesn't get promoted from one to two to three. That's certainly a possibility. And one thing about — You say it's a possibility. I mean, is — I suppose it's always a possibility. But does the scheme for those who are not grandfathered provide that they will never get beyond the intake level if they are sex offender and so on unless they agree to this? No, they will, they will progress unless they have other reasons that they're not, because what happens with this program, it's an 18-month program. Our inmates are not even evaluated typically for release until they're two years from their scheduled release date. So anybody with a sentence of any length will go several years in the system working their way up if they're complying with, the, with what they're supposed to do. Well, then the only person who's going to be in the position that Justice Scalia described is the person who's been getting into trouble uh, along the way and never does progress. The person... I, I take it like this petitioner here is going to be in the same position as this petitioner. Yes, potentially. But in our view, it doesn't matter in the prison, should not matter in the prison context, whether you view it as taking away a benefit or not bestowing, not bestowing a benefit, because none of these inmates come in with an expectation to any of these privileges. Could, this, could the Kansas do that, this with respect to a prisoner who is writing letters to the editor to the newspaper complaining about prison conditions. They said, well, this, all this is privilege. Uh, we don't have to give you anything. You have no one to that's, I think that's a different case, and that probably takes the court quickly to Turner, where, where the court has addressed But it. why is the, the First Amendment different from the self-incrimination clause? I mean, if in one case you can't disadvantage the person for exercising that constitutional right, why in the other case can you? I mean, two, you have the First Amendment. Two things, Justice Ginsburg. One, we don't think we are disadvantaging here in, in the terms but of actually compelling. But then you should say the same thing about the First Amendment. You're not taking away anything you're entitled to. You have no liberty interest, property interest, all that. If that follows, then what's wrong with saying? But in the First Amendment context, he has a right, a free speech right or a right of access to the courts that may be at issue. In this context, all the Fifth Amendment says is no person shall be compelled. So as, as, as I recall it, the First Amendment says, speaks of abridgment. Yes. Right? And, and uh, the Fifth Amendment speaks of compulsion. Compulsion. That's I, the I'm concerned the about the same thing Justice Ginsburg is concerned. I, I, I have to say, I can't find in our cases a statement that a burden on your or an unconstitutional condition uh, which in, involves the Fifth Amendment is, is barred. But I, I'm wondering if it oughtn't to be. Is it your, it seems to me to follow from your position that every prisoner in Kansas could be told either you confess to the crime for which you've been convicted and all other crimes you've committed, or you go to maximum security for the rest of your time here. Not necessarily, Justice Kennedy. Because I, I think the state does have an interest in saying we want to rehabilitate you and it's best for you to confront your wrong. Uh, what, would, would you say that the statute uh, or the rule I propose is, is problematic? And is it different from what you're proposing? To us? I think it's potentially different, although it is potentially permissible. 
Constitution, but the question would become what sort of a legitimate, valid, peniological interest do we have? Do we have such an interest in having every inmate do that from the day they enter prison? This I is think very you could different. make that argument. It's we could good make for people that argument. to confront the consequences of what they've done. We could make that argument. And in this case, it's critical, actually. I'd be very troubled by that. Well, it's much more than that in this case, because here the, the, the therapists are clear. The denial is a big problem with sex offenders, and to overcome that denial, we need a meaningful acceptance of responsibility, not an immunity that simply allows the inmate to talk with no consequence whatsoever, potentially. We need a meaningful acceptance, and that's what we're after here. And, and Mr. Lyle has not questioned well, that's a legitimate — Well, you think it can only be meaningful if you compel them to admit to a, a new crime for which they could be prosecuted? Except, with all due respect, Justice O'Connor, we would not say we're compelling them, but we're simply giving them a choice that has some real consequences. We want people in this program who really want to participate. We have a waiting list to get into this program. So we don't need inmates in this program who are not serious about this. We have plenty who are willing to take advantage of the program as it's done right now, and it's full. And so why isn't your penological interest satisfied in confining the program to those who want to be in it? who will not be subject to this compulsion, if that's what it is. Uh, I mean, your, your argument is that we have a penological interest, in effect, that justifies these consequences. Yes, we but do. if you could fill your program without even having to raise the issue that involves these consequences, why do you have a penological interest in, in the insistence that gives rise to this case? Because the, these fellows have proven that most, or not most, but many of them will not voluntarily engage in this program, even though they need I'm, I'm assuming that is so, but if you can fill the program Except with people who will, why, why is there an interest, in effect, in forcing the issue for those who do not want to do it voluntarily? Because we still have an interest in rehabilitating all of these sex offenders. Just because some of them are more willing to be rehabilitated doesn't mean the state well, does but not if, have an if, interest. if the program is full, then... Uh, it, it, is your interest in simply getting statements of, of guilt or something from people who will never go into the program? No, and that's why he has the choice. He can simply refuse. He can refuse, and there's no incrimination if he refuses to participate. But what he's doing is taking up a bed in, in the medium part of the facility, which is overcrowded at this point, in essence, double-celled everyone, and, and the medium unit is a working unit. The medium unit is for people who are actively involved in prison programs. And so we just don't have the space. If you're not going to work at your programs, we'll move you. That's what we're trying to do with Mr. Law. That is not, that is not a voluntary program. It's a conscription system. What you and first, I'd like you to go back to the rehabilitation thing, because that is an aim, um, an aspiration for every prisoner. And you made very strongly the point that the first step in rehabilitation is acceptance of responsibility. If that's so, I don't see why you, this, you could not do this with every prisoner who enters. You could say, Take responsibility by confessing that you did what you were accused of doing, no matter what your defense was. And two, tell us about all your other nefarious deeds. But you apply this to sex offenders, but you, the reasons that you give seem to me to be across the board. Is there any distinction, any constitutional distinction that you would make? Or are you saying, yes, we could do this in the case of every prisoner? 
If there's, if as long as there's a, under Turner, a legitimate penological interest, yes, potentially we could. We don't. We're only focused on the sex offenders here. But if there's a legitimate reason, well, let's to do it, take out the if because is there or isn't there? Is it in the case of every one that you incarcerate, there is an interest in rehabilitating that person? Absolutely. And you have said that the first step in rehabilitation is acceptance of responsibility for the wrong that you've done. Yes. But you also rely, don't you, Mr. McAllister, on the fact that uh, the therapists for this particular type of type of crime have come down very hard on the idea. Uh, and I take it perhaps there may not be the same body of support for that sort of treatment of other offenders. And, and there's certainly not, for example, treatment programs necessarily for burglars or robbers or other categories. The sex offender program is somewhat special in that respect. But constitutionally, if, if suddenly somebody got a good idea here and uh, uh, psychiatrists came forward saying, yes, you, you, can, uh, you, you can reform uh, property criminals, too, we'd be in exactly the same boat. Yes, potentially. And, and that's not, in our view, a constitutional problem because this case, this court has long said, for example, none of the things we're talking about here are atypical in prison. The inmates have no particular expectation of a particular set of living conditions within prison. Meacham versus Fano is very clear. They could be transferred from one prison to another for whatever reason or no reason at all without violating the Constitution. This is a very mild incentive program to try to get these fellows to meaningfully participate in the program. The, the kind of conundrum that, I, that it puzzles me that I don't have an answer to is, is uh, illustrated by the trial process itself. I suppose the government couldn't possibly say, if you insist on your right to a jury trial and insist on your right to remain silent, we're going to sentence you to 10 more years in jail. But the government can say, if you confess, and don't go to trial and show true contrition, we'll give you 10 years less. I mean, that's written into the guidelines, but they seem to come to the same thing. Well, that seems to be true of this case. And if I could understand how to analyze the first, I might be able to understand how to analyze the second. Well, just as far as I say, the first is different, or, or in essence, we're different, because all of our — this takes place inside the prison. The expectations are quite different. That's why we, we discuss Sandin in the briefs, not because it, it is necessarily transportable to the Fifth Amendment, but what Sandin recognizes is prisons are very different. And what the expectations are, what the hardships are, is just a very different situation than free citizens and what they may be confronted with in the way of choices. You are saying you can have two classes of prisoners, those who have confessed to their crimes and those who haven't, and you can treat them differently. No TV, no uh, Meet at lunch, no recreation, no softball, and it seems to me the necessary consequence of that for a prisoner facing a long term is that it's going to induce confessions from innocent people. Except, Justice Kennedy, it may do that. But our program, just like the federal program, has pretty strict confidentiality limits. Basically, there's a patient therapist privilege that operates here. And the only reasons, they're given a form right up front that says the only reasons the therapist will disclose anything that's disclosed to the therapist, very limited, things that deal with safety within the prison, threats to other inmates. I thought you conceded, you conceded that a prosecutor, say, in the sexual history, says, I committed X, Y, Z, rapes, and, uh, that a prosecutor, as long as there's no statute of limitations problem, in Kansas, unlike, as I understand the federal program is, a prosecutor could 
say, okay, now we're going to indict you for that. But my understanding is they could do that in the federal program as well because there's no immunity granted under the federal program either. So if they actually made a statement, the federal government could prosecute them just like we could. We have not in 13 years. But under the federal program, program, they don't suffer any loss of anything if they if they don't uh, make the statement, and under yours they do. That's true. But but under yours, in any case, whether the feds do it or not, under yours, the prosecutor could use that information, couldn't he? Could. We never have, but could. Yes, theoretically could. Can I ask you, Mr. McAllister, do you know if, if and there's similar programs in a lot of states, as I understand it, do any of them give the uh, inmate immunity if he participates in the program? Justice Stevens, it's my understanding that some may, although I don't know the exact number, and I do know from the state amicus brief, the 18 states that signed on to that obviously think immunity is a bad idea, and as I said, the federal government does not immunize the inmates. I understand the federal government the does not, yeah. Yes. And of those, how many are like Kansas, that is, it isn't a voluntary the Skinsburg, I don't know the, the answer to that. I don't know exactly what their, their programs are like. Ours was the, the first of its kind in, in some sense when we implemented this, this program. So some may have followed our model, but I don't know for sure. With the Court's permission, I'd like to remain, reserve the remainder. Very well, Mr. McAllister. Uh, Mr. Garr, we'll hear from you. Mr. Garr, why does the Federal Government not think it a good idea to grant immunity? Uh, Justice Scalia, the federal government has, has a very limited program. It applies in only one facility nationwide, and it has made a determination to allow for voluntary participation among convicted sexual offenders in that program. Now, in, in our view, that's a judgment that this Court's decisions clearly enable the Federal Bureau of Prisons to make, and we think that the, that the Kansas prison officials have, have acted within their judgment to adopt a different kind of program. As the therapists all acknowledge, denial is one of the biggest obstacles to receiving treatment in these kinds of programs, and I think it's important for the Court to recognize. Let me get around to answering my question. Why, why did the Federal Government think it not a good idea to grant immunity in its program? Oh, the, the federal government reserves the right, uh, the same confidentiality limits that the state does, that is, to, to deal with offenses that threaten ins- institutional security, to deal with, with suspected cases of child abuse, to deal with suspected cases of harm to individuals uh, within the prison or outside of the prisons. Those confidentiality limits uh, are clearly related to legitimate penological interests, and we think that the federal government only those things can be prosecuted. I, I thought that it, that that, that uh, prosecution was available for anything that was uh, that was disclosed, although although there was confidentiality. That's right. I mean, the confidentiality limits work in conjunction. Those are with confidentiality the, limits, not immunity limits, right? That's right. So but, the federal government has has not given uh, use immunity. Uh, uh, for anybody, in the th- and that's absolutely clear from the, from the waiver, or the confidentiality statement that, that inmates signed before they enroll in the program. And we think that, particularly where you're dealing with a program that does clearly promote legitimate penological interests in rehabilitating a class of, of offenders that poses a unique risk of recidivism upon their release, that states the mere fact that the state doesn't grant immunity to inmates who participate does not provide an answer to the constitutional problem. Well, does the, the federal government? Uh, deprive the prisoner of any benefits or programs if he refuses to um, engage in the program? The the federal government doesn't apply the same incentive schemes that the state of Kansas Are there any? What are the incentives? Uh, the, the incentive, the, 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 the overriding incentive is, of course, the value of the treatment that the inmate receives. Now, once the treatment But, but one, not, it, it, nothing is threatened or carried out in the federal program. 
to deprive the non-consenting prisoner of any privilege. Is well, that right? Th- that's true up front in terms of the incentive scheme. Now, once, once uh, an inmate is in the program and if he chooses not to uh, comply with the acceptance of responsibility goals, the inmate can be transferred back to his to his parent facility, and that can be uh, something on its, its record. But certainly the up front. Choice, the choice to go into the program is strictly the inmates. There's no coercion uh, or inducement. Uh, he, he loses nothing if he chooses not to go in. Is that correct? That's the way the Federal Bureau of Prisons. Is it a more desirable facility? It is at a more desirable facility. So what he loses and is he doesn't he doesn't he doesn't get out of the rotten place he's in to a, to a better facility. I right? think that's right, and I think it's important. But he doesn't right. lose a benefit that he currently has. Well, we don't. We think that the, that the privileges that we're talking about in the case of Kansas, TV ownership, personal TV in the cell, visitation privileges beyond immediate family and, and lawyers, canteen expenditures. These aren't these aren't the right sorts of right to work, the right to take other programs in the prison. The, the the privileges are reduced. I think that the chart that's on page 27 of the joint appendix explains how they're reduced. Substantial reduction in how much you can earn in prison. What jobs you can do in prison, isn't that so? Well, there's, there is a definite reduction. And the flip side of that is Kansas reserves the higher privileges, the more modern facilities, to those inmates who choose to take the constructive steps towards reentering society. Okay, well, but there's, no, there's no reduction in the federal system. Is that correct? There's no the, — the, the federal system currently doesn't employ the same earnable privilege scheme that the Kansas prison — no, but we're, we're trying to be specific about it. Uh, as, 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 as I think we think we understand it, uh, the inmate cannot lose privileges that the inmate currently enjoys simply by exercising the option not to enter the program. Are we correct? That's correct, except that the inmate can be sent back to his parent facility. Yeah, but, but you have said, you said in your opening statement, and you seem to be backing away from it, you said the federal program is a voluntary program. As is, is not a voluntary program, at least not for people well, like well, with, the issue here, isn't it? With respect, we think that that is the issue. I mean, we're not talking about losing someone's job or means of livelihood. The, the consequences faced by free individuals in the penalty cases that respondents relied upon. We're talking about loss of institutional privileges that inmates have no expectation enjoying once they enter the prison. We think that the prison context is key to evaluating the Fifth Amendment claim in this well, let, case. Let me ask you this, Mr. Garb. Maybe you can give me some help with the larger question that's bothering me, and I think under underlies Justice Ginsburg's first question. The, the, the rule of, of, of unconstitutional conditions doesn't seem to apply in our cases or hasn't been applied in the Fifth Amendment context. Why, why is that? Well, I, I, foremost, because the Fifth Amendment says compelled self-incrimination. The, the amendment, therefore, recognizes that there are some sorts of pressures or conditions short of compulsion which, which would not meet the Fifth Amendment standard. In this Court's case, anything right? short of, of compulsion does, does not meet it. Uh, that, is, that is to say, you can have two classes of inmates, those who've confessed and those who haven't, for all of prison life. Well, th- th- uh, and, and isn't there a danger then of, 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 of inducing innocent people to, to confess? I think that type of hypotheticals is much different, much further afield than the program Fifth in this case. The amendment doesn't say inducing, does it? It says compelling. It says compelling. That's exactly right, and that's supported by the text and history and purpose of the amendment. Mr. Gard, don't we, in fact, have two classes in, in, in all prison systems? Uh, those who have pleaded guilty and, and have gotten a relatively short sentence by reason of their guilty plea for a particular crime, 
and those who have refused to plead guilty and have gotten a longer sentence because of their refusal to do so for the same crime. That's you have two classes in prison. That's not just not just not being able to spend as much at the PX, but but they're there for another another 15 years. That's correct, and and I think it's important for the court to recognize that these sorts of earnable daily privileges, like TV ownership, canteen expenditures, and housing in preferred facilities, are among the most common tools that prison administrators use to manage order in the prison environment and to encourage inmates to take socially constructive steps. This Court's cases like Sandin and Meacham and and Bell versus Wolfish recognize that once someone is lawfully incarcerated, that brings about a necessary withdrawal of many rights and privileges consistent with the needs of the management. So is compulsion anything other than physical uh, or psychological? um, Oh, sure, sure. I mean, what would be, I mean, in, in outside prison, we know, at least this Court's president has said, losing your membership in the bar, losing your job, that counts as compulsion, even though no one is putting you on the rack and screw. And, and, and we think we agree with Judge Friendly and others who have suggested that those cases lie at the outer reaches of this Court's Fifth Amendment jurisprudence. And, and we think that the denial of the sorts of common routine privileges at issue in this case, TV privileges, canteen expenditures, don't even come close How to about the- loss of visiting privileges? That could be crucial. To a prisoner. Well, it's not a complete loss in this case. Again, the chart on page 27 of the Joint Appendix indicates that. Suppose it were. I mean, there are some of these things that must mean all the difference in the world to someone who's incarcerated. Well, I, I mean, the, the further the, the Court goes out in that direction, then obviously at some point that that program would be more difficult to defend under the Turner versus That's the Kansas analysis. program. It's they not- want to offer no limit on what they can do here. They can prosecute for a new crime that might be disclosed, and they can deprive the prisoner of all visiting privileges and all kinds of things. Well, with with respect, we we don't think that that's the Kansas program. The Kansas program offers incentives by withholding privileges from those inmates who choose not to take socially constructive steps. It's important to recognize that, that no one disputes that the rehabilitation program in this case is designed to serve legitimate penological interests. There's widespread agreement that, so, that sexual offender treatment programs benefits inmates and society alike by enabling convicted offenders. But it just sounds like a basic difference. As I understand your description in the one federal program, it sounds like if the prisoner says no, I won't participate, the prisoner goes back to the facility of origin and can still, over time, earn various privileges. And Kansas is telling us in their scheme, no, they reserve the right to deprive the the prisoner of any privilege thereafter during his term in prison and to put him in a more severe condition of incarceration. Again, I would disagree with the, the, the characterization of the Kansas program, but, but more importantly, we think that the judgment made by the Federal Bureau of Prison and the judgment made by the Kansas prison officials are well within the range of decisions that this Court's prison decisions permit. Even if in, I'm correct in my description. Your description presents a different situation. Thank you, Mr. Garr. Uh, Mr. Wiltanger, we'll hear from, is it Wiltanger or Wiltanger? It's Wiltanger, Your Honor. Wiltanger. Mr. Wiltanger, we'll hear from Mr. Chief Justice, and may it please the Court, if you're a prisoner in Kansas and you commit a rape while in prison, you get the same penalties that Mr. Lyle gets. 
If you're a prisoner in Kansas and you commit arson in your cell or somewhere in the prison, you get the same penalties Mr. Lyle gets. If you commit a theft, you get the same penalties. Well, you you mean someone who commits arson in prison gets only those penalties that he isn't prosecuted for committing arson? There could be a potential prosecution if they turn it over, but there would be. Like like a number of years and more in jail. That could be, Your Honor. But but under the state system, they get moved down to the same level that Mr. Lyle is. And, in fact, their punishment could be worse because. I expect the arsonist considers that the least of his worries. And and, and the least of negligent punishment, you assume your answer in your favor. What, what I'd like to know is what, the way they characterize it, basically, is that you come in without anything. Indeed, your client, I think, went, he started off in a maximum security part of the prison with a medium security bed, or at least he could have done. And then uh, what happens is people who participate in treatment programs get bonuses, privileges. And if you don't participate in the bo- treatment program, well, obviously, you don't get the privilege. Now, that's their characterization of it, basically. Yours is, well, if you start treatment and you stop, you get punished. Now, you're both describing the same thing, but it sounds as if it has very different consequences, and how are we supposed to say which is the correct description, the appropriate characterization? I think the difference, Your Honor, is, is, is somewhat illustrated by, by the government's attorney in that this is not voluntary and that once you achieve a level, the state, has, the state has set up a structure, Your Honor, under which if you're good, you do your job, you get to a certain level. And that's for everybody. They have rules on this. And Mr. Lyle did that, and he got to that level. He had achieved something. And what the state does is it comes along and says, well, if you don't give up your Fifth Amendment rights and if you don't tell us about all these other uncharged crimes, we're taking that away from you. You'll no longer have it. You'll lose your job. But is that true on — is it true that their system is — you will be awarded privileges as long as you participate in treatment. But our privileges are open only to people who participate in treatment. I would disagree with that, Your Honor, right, because, because? because people in the prison system who do not participate in treatment get the same privileges. They get to get to that level. Not Why did he lose his? Why did he lose his privileges? Well, he hasn't technically, Your Honor, lost his privileges. No, no, no. But he what will. About non-sex offenders. Non-sex who, offenders who have no ability to go into the program. Uh, have no ability, but but other there there. But that's a different category of prisoner, really. But there could be other sex offenders in the prison who are not required to take SATP. For example, if there was a, if for some reason there was a statutory rape penalty, they may not be required to take SATP. But yes, all prisoners in the system, sex offenders, murderers, arsonists, get a chance well, what, to get what to What case from our court? What cases? Do you think most uh, most strongly support your position, Your Honor? I think the cases of Garrity, Gardner, Cunningham support the position. We're talking about loss of job in 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 a, in a civilian society. Uh, do you think the denials here are of, of that consequence? I do, Your Honor. Why? Specifically as to the job, Mr. Lyle, if if any inmate in the prison system in Kansas, if they were, for example, in minimum security, can work an outside job. They obviously can't leave, but they could go pick up trash along the road, and they could make. Whatever the employer is going to pay them, say, assume it's $7 an hour. Maybe it's not that much. They can keep that money. They don't keep all of it. They pay some to the prison. They pay some to victims' restitution. But if they lose their job under the Kansas structure, they will never get to but, work a job that's yeah, even equivalent to that. You're talking about a situation where in civilian life the person who loses his job loses his livelihood, basically. Certainly that's not true in a prison. This man is going to eat whether he does it or not. He will eat, Your Honor, but at the same, same, same time, 
uh, a policeman in Gardner or a policeman in Garrity could go out and get another job and earn something, an equivalent wage, or possibly even a better wage. Mr. Lau can't. Mr. McAllister, I, I am very, Mr. very — I'm sorry, Mr. Wiltanger. I am very uh, uh, reluctant to extend our, our expansive uh, notion of what constitutes compulsion to the area of criminal law and penology for for this simple reason why why does the situation of your client differ from the situation of the person who's been arrested for first degree murder and the case is put to him by the prosecutor you know i'll go ahead with this prosecution for first degree murder you will be in prison for life on the other hand if you confess that you are guilty of voluntary manslaughter you'll get a 15 year term now, has that person been compelled to, uh, to plead guilty to voluntary manslaughter? No, they haven't, Your Honor. But that's, you know, it, either you do it or you're going to get life. I don't, Your Honor, our view is, not, is that that is not compulsion because what is being extended to the murder suspect is a benefit, some way to improve your lot. In this situation, for example, if the state wanted to, what they do, and it's not Mr. Lyle's case because he was convicted before 1995, but if, you do, if you're convicted after 1995, you can be stripped of your good time credit. They take it away from you. If, on the other hand, the state decided that what we're going to do for those inmates who are participating in the program is extend them good time credit or make their situation better or give them a benefit, I don't think that's common. Well, I don't think so, that would be it's our almost case. a play on words then. Start them in, start them off in the worst situation and just say, you know. And that certainly doesn't benefit prisoners as a class. The Constitution surely can't turn on that, on, on that, whether you characterize it as giving them a benefit or depriving them of a benefit they already Well, the Constitution obviously prohibits any kind of sanction for the invocation of your Fifth Amendment rights. Mr. Siltire, you said it in your brief, and I wanted to make sure that it really is your position. You said, here is a man with a certain set of privileges. They take that away, and that's compulsory. But if you started everyone, or you didn't even say everyone, you said every sex offender goes in at level one, the lowest level, and never gets out of that unless signs up for this program with all its terms and conditions, that person, you say, is not being compelled because for him it's not achieving privileges rather than having privileges taken away. Is, is that do you adhere to that distinction that the state of Kansas could do exactly what it's doing now if it said, Mr. Wilhanger and all sexual offenders, you go in at level one and you never get out of it unless you take this program? Your Honor, I, I do think that's certainly closer to the — that would be closer to a constitutional law. That wouldn't be unconstitutional. Would be or would? It would not be, Your Honor. Would not be. It would now, not be unconstitutional. It would not be unconstitutional. That is our position. So the whole thing, then, it comes down to subtraction is no good. That doesn't work. But addition is okay. I mean, you can give the person nothing in the beginning, and then the carrot is okay. But you can't once — so this really turns, says to Kansas, what you're doing, the whole program is fine. The only thing is you take this category of offender and you don't give them anything until they take this program. If they could set up a system or a structure or, or fashion some rules, obviously they don't have that now, then I don't think that would be unconstitutional. Again, I do think there is — if the Court doesn't want to draw a hyper-technical distinction, that's fine, but the Court — the Fifth Amendment doesn't prohibit benefiting somebody or making their lot in life better. So you think the, uh, the sentencing guidelines would be invalid if, instead of the current provision, which gives you uh, um, 
good points for uh, acceptance of responsibility. It rather gave you bad points for refusing to accept responsibility. I do, Your Honor. I do. If, if that's so. That's a constitutional distinction. I, I do believe so, Your Honor. If, if, that's, if that's so, does this case, as my understanding of it, is that the prison created a new policy, and that policy was that everybody was at level one unless you participate in a recommended program. That that was their new policy, but your client was grandfathered in at level three because he was in prison at the time. And so this case, in your opinion, turns on the fact that we're dealing with one of the few prisoners who was grandfathered in, and therefore it's a taking away rather than being a new prisoner who would have started at level one, in which case it would have been added on. Not exactly, Your Honor. Because? Because all inmates in the there — there are not just inmates at level three who were grandfathered in. Every single inmate who enters the prison system can get to level three. And as, as, as opposing counsel — Even without participating in a recommended program? Absolutely. Absolutely. Then they changed the rule and said if you don't participate in a recommended program, you can't get to level three. Is that right? If they have not — they have not changed the rule. That is not the current rule. The current rule is — and the way that SATP or the sex offender treatment is structured is you don't really become eligible to take it or forced to take it until about two years before your first parole date. So by that time, especially in Mr. Lyle's case, he's been in prison for 15 years, most inmates are going to be at that level three. So while he was grandfathered in, most inmates, when they get eligible or are forced to take SATP, they're going to be at level three. There has been no change in policy. The state is now not saying that you don't get from level one to level two unless you participate in SATP. SATP. The law still is, if you're at level three, you're going to level one, and you're going to go to maximum security, and you're going to stay there forever. I mean, again, the, the reference I was making at the first is the arsonist. That's, this is a, a product that they, they don't have the facilities to give this course to everyone, so they say when you're getting closer to release time, you get it. So most people who are in, in as sexual offenders don't have the opportunity well, the state wants, also, wants their sex offenders to take it. There is a little bit of a concern with spots, but what they do is they move people around and make sure that those people who are but coming not, for, that, not their first year, I, when, from what I understand. No, Your Honor. I, I apologize if I misspoke. You would not be entering into sex offender treatment your first year, typically. But, but your brief described a system where suppose we had all sex offenders, they go in at level one unless they take the program. That's something that doesn't exist in current world only because of the lack of resources that Kansas can't give this program to all the people who would qualify, so it concentrates on the people who have served a substantial part of their sentence already. That is correct. And, and, and please understand, Your Honor, that that is only one possible solution that would allow the state to continue to run its SATP. Obviously, another solution as set forth by the Tenth Circuit would be immunity. Another thing, to follow the program that the federal government runs, make it voluntary, Ex extract no penalties and punish no one if they don't want to participate in the program, or take away the admission of responsibility, or take away the need. second one is no solution. The state wants people to take it. They think it's important for the rehabilitation of the people and for the safety of society. They do want to exert some pressure for people to go into it. The question is whether this pressure is, is, is somehow unconstitutional when you deprive the person of nothing to which he's entitled, nothing to which he had any expectation of receipt when he goes into prison. He, he could have been kept in level one for his whole period there. Your Honor, I agree with that. The one distinction I would make is the state has set up a system by, by which prisoners understand that if they do certain things, they get to levels. While there may not be a, a constitutional liberty interest in it, they do know that if they follow the rules, they're going to get to this level. 
Um, but, but, but as far as addressing your first point, immunity would be the result. And if you had to have everybody in the program, if there was no other option, then you, then you would extend them immunity. Or, or the other solution could be, if you wanted everyone in the program, don't make them admit guilt to their crime. Don't make them catalog every offense that they've never been charged with. Don't then use a polygraph test to sit down and ferret out and make sure that you've got every single past crime. That would be one solution beyond simple immunity. But that's a solution that isn't consistent with the therapist's idea that this is how it should be done. Potentially, Your Honor. I mean, the, the State has not always required a written admission of responsibility. It's only been within the past 10 years that they've required that. But, but you're correct. The, the therapists apparently believe that you have to have an admission of responsibility. I'm not sure why it has to be a written statement where you, you fess everything up. But certainly the Constitution can't turn on whether or not a written statement I, is required. I, Your Honor, I agree. That is Do you know, uh, I asked your opponent this question, the extent to which other states have granted immunity to solve this problem? There are a couple states that I know offhand, Your Honor. Uh, California and Kentucky uh, have confidentiality provisions, privileges that, that keep all this stuff kept within. Um, I don't believe it's the majority of the states that do that. I wish I had a better answer. I do believe Kansas is the only state that requires um, all this additional ferreting out of inf additional information. Well, if, it, if the, the programs are important, I take it, really important, and, and they're thinking that this is a very important way to run them, I, I give them that. All right, now, if I take your approach, and I find this very difficult, I take your approach and try to distinguish between what's the add-on as a privilege and the subtraction as a penalty. Now, my concern would be I'm now facing a nightmare of varying situations in prisons across the country and varying efforts to say what's the status quo in respect to a particular prisoner. What is an add-on as opposed to a subtraction? And the arguments are infinite. Now, what could you say that would relieve me of that concern? Well, first, Your Honor, if this Court doesn't want to get drawn into a benefit versus a punishment distinction, you don't have to follow that for this rule. That is a position that we mentioned in the brief, that there is — that we feel there is a difference between a benefit and a, and a punishment. But I also don't think that there will be a rash of litigation. The Supreme Court law, as you, obviously, as you know, speaks to sanctions, speaks to penalty, anything that makes your indication of your Fifth Amendment rights costly. And we've had that rule for — quite some time, and certainly there have been cases that have come down since then where you look at it and decide, well, is he being penalized? So again, I, I'm, I apologize if I'm sticking to a hyper-technical distinction, but I do believe that the law would not really complicate matters and that there is not going to be a rash of litigation. You didn't answer the question, though, and I have the same problem Justice Breyer does. I don't know that we can distinguish between a benefit and a sanction. I don't know that that's a line that at the end of the day uh, is going to be a good line. So what other line do you offer? Well, I, I do believe that, I do believe that the, the sanction, or, or what you can look at, is you can look at the, the, this Court's ruling as to what is a voluntary statement in the Cullen case, whether or not he's being able to make an unconstrained choice. Now, why not look to what Sandin looked to in, in true, not in the context of the Fifth Amendment, but in another context, and that is whether what you have been deprived of in prison is, is beyond what is the normal expectation of prison life. Your Honor, I think that does a couple of things and why we disagree with Sandin. One is, I think you're creating a new rule, whereas I think we already have a fine rule that works in the Fifth Amendment arena. And if we're concerned about applying a Fifth Amendment rule... No, no, no. We, we, we don't have a rule that arrives, that, that applies in the Fifth Amendment arena with regard to depriving people of, of things to which they are not entitled as free citizens. When you deprive someone of a job, 
he has an entitlement to that job. You are depriving him of some liberty, liberty that he, in fact, possessed. Your client has been deprived of no liberty to which he was entitled, not a single liberty to which he was entitled. He could have been kept in level one for his entire period in prison. He would have had no complaint at law. So I, I don't think it's parallel to the out-of-prison cases. So we, it seems to me we need a new rule for in-prison cases. We could, we could have a rule that so long as you haven't been deprived of a liberty to which you're entitled, there has been no compulsion. That goes pretty far. We don't have to go that far. We could, we could use the line that Sandin uses. So long as what's been done to you doesn't go below the normal expectation of prison life. I mean, if they, if, if they said you either enter this program or you're going to be in solitary for the rest of your 15 years, that, you know, that's beyond the normal expectation of prison life. But what your client has suffered is, is not that, it seems to me. Your Honor, I would agree to you that Mr. Lyle has no liberty interest at play here, but I would also suggest that there is no liberty interest in an at-will employment. This Court has previously found that, that if you're an at-will employee, you have no protected property or liberty interest, and yet in those cases, like the Gardner case and the Garrity case, there has been found a Fifth Amendment violation. There's certainly no liberty interest in being a, 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 a political party officer in the Cunningham case, and yet we still have a Fifth Amendment violation. Don't call it liberty interest. Call it a right. What a right. He's, he's entitled as a free citizen to have that. Your client is not entitled to be in, in level three. But, but, but the way that the state has set up its structure, they have made rules that they want everybody working. He's entitled to have a job. They want him to have a job. The other reason I think Sandin doesn't work, Your Honor, is I do share some of the concern that was previously expect, expressed by some of the other justices, is that there would seem to be no reason why the state couldn't walk up and down the hall or up and down the cells with a, with a notepad and suggest, well, what's your crime? Did you do it? I'm not really concerned of whether or not you have an appeal ongoing or now. I just want to know if you did it. And, oh, by the way, please let me know everything else you've done. Okay. So we'll add to it. It has to be, a, and, and the, the state of Kansas is perfectly willing to add to it. It has to be for a legitimate penological purpose. And certainly I would, I would agree with what's previously said, that there could be a legitimate penological purpose in confessing, in coming clean, and that you will not be a model prisoner unless you take responsibility for your crime whether it be a sex offense or whether it be a murder. The other reason I think Sandin uh, is not applicable to this case and should not be extended to this case is this Court actually said in Sandin, while you don't have a due process right in a particular level of confinement, you do retain other protections, such as the First and the Eighth Amendment, that if we move you, if you get moved from one place to another, you, you still may be able to bring a constitutional claim. And that's what Mr. Lyle's done. He's been moved in response to a proper indication of his Fifth Amendment rights, and he has brought a lawsuit against the state. He is actually following some of the dicta in Sandin. I don't think Sandin should be extended. I do think there is a potential for abuse. Why would Sandin, if you extend it, why would it necessarily be limited to the Fifth Amendment? Is it possible that a state, if it wanted, could go around and abridge First Amendment rights and suggest that that's, you see, I was thinking about that, and the trouble with analogies, if you get one that's very close, you become uncertain again. I mean, suppose, suppose that the, the uh, actual analogy was there is a treatment program and the treatment program requires the prisoner to be isolated and not get any mail and not write any letters to the newspaper for a couple of months. And they say as part of this, it's all totally legitimate. And, and they say as part of this legitimate treatment program, uh, you can't write your letter to the newspaper. That's part of the treatment. And moreover, uh, we'll give you a privilege if you do it. And now what happens is they grandfather one person in. Now I'm back in the same, you see, I'm back in the same dilemma. Maybe it's not quite as bad because you don't have the word compelled there, but. Your Honor, I, I agree with, I agree with, with the concern over the technical distinction between benefit and penalty. But I would say in that instance, again, keeping in mind that Mr. Lyle's not just the sole person who's been grandfathered in, 
Uh, he's one of many who were grandfathered in, but the, the, the grandfather. I mean, it, it is the grandfather, isn't it, in his case that makes him? Well, you said there were some other things, and I'd like to be sure to have them in mind that make it a penalty and not just the withholding of a privilege. Assume for the moment, Mr. Lau, we're not grandfathered in. Yeah. Okay. Assume for the moment he arrives. Assume he committed his crime last year and he gets sentenced to 20 years to life tomorrow. Mm-hmm. Well, he would enter the prison system at intake level one, mm-hmm. and about 18 years from now, the state will ask him to take sex offender treatment. That's how it's typically planned. Mr. Lyle will follow the rules that the state has set out, will follow the regulations, will be a model prisoner, as Mr. Lyle actually has been, and he will get all the way to level three. I see. He will get all that way out. He will be there, and then, and then in, and he crashed. in 2019, they say to him, please take SAT. Yeah, I see. Well, what, one difference, certainly between the First Amendment and its cases and the Fifth Amendment, is that there is a compulsion requirement in order to invoke the Fifth Amendment, where, where the First Amendment doesn't have anything like that. I agree. They are, they are different. They are different standards. The only point that I was trying to raise, uh, Your Honor, is that I think standing is potentially a little bit of a dangerous standard. That's, where I suppose that's what distinguishes the yeah. detriment and the benefit. There's a compulsion, well, then it's a detriment. The, the, first, the Fifth Amendment doesn't say it should be unlawful to bribe a witness to get him to testify. The Fifth Amendment draws the line between benefits and detriments, doesn't it? It, it does. And that's, again, what I'm so, sure. The Kansas program would be perfectly okay in, in, in your estimation if it provided that at the end of 18 years of 20-year sentences or two years before the end of their sentence, all sex offenders shall be reduced, all sex offenders shall be reduced to prison level one. No, Your Honor, I, I'm — Why not? Because then — and then if they choose to come in this program, they will be getting the benefit of going back up to three. But all of them go down to one. I, I don't think that would be constitutional on your Why idea. not? I think it would be set up as a way to get around SATP and a way to get around the invocation of your Fifth Amendment well, right. Any, it any, would be an artifice. Well, of course it's an artifice, but so is the whole thing, benefit versus uh, punishment. I mean, I, I, Well, the one, the one thing I would encourage this Court to look at is — Look at how it affects itself on the prisoner. And, again, if you're going to look at the Cologne case, which is, again, is, this, is, is his choice an unconstrained one? Look at, at what is done to the inmate here. He's, he's never going to get back to level three. The arsonist will get back to level three. The arsonist will not be moved to maximum security. Mr. Lyle's there forever. It's the same, it's the same in my hypothetical, though. He, he, there's no compulsion on him. After his 18 years in prison, he's been knocked back down to one. There's no compulsion on him. He gets a benefit if he joins this program. If it's entirely divorced from the program or the Fifth Amendment, then, Your Honor, then that potentially would be constitutional. I would agree with that. But, unfortunately, for Mr. Lyle's case, that's not how the state has set up its structure. It, it, you get to a point, you follow the rules, you become a model prisoner, and then you get broken down. That's what they're doing here. And, again, the point I was trying to make earlier is the punishment's more severe. The court called, or excuse me, the state calls this punishment. They call it punishment when we're dealing with arsonists, when we're dealing with rapists, when we're dealing with somebody who steals something. They call that punishment, but they're unwilling to call that punishment here. It's an incentive. It's a a benefit or an extension of a privilege, but it's not. You're you're saying to decide what is compulsion, um, you've got to look at uh, at how other people are treated, in effect. Uh, In in your answer to Justice Scalia, you said, you know, if if everybody got knocked down uh, uh, within two years of release, no matter what the crime, uh, there wouldn't be the constitutional problem. But if only these people are, even though it's written into the scheme, when the moment they go in, there still would be a constitutional problem. And and it's it's a comparative treatment criterion uh, among prisoners uh, in different classes of offenses that, that, you're, that you're relying on, isn't it? 
Somewhat, Your Honor. Yeah. Somewhat. Uh, and I agree if the State had set up a stricture. Then, then let me ask you to concentrate on that question a little harder, because you did say in your brief that if all sex offenders, not all prisoners, all sex offenders on day one were put in class one, they could stay there and never get out unless the, the carrot that was dangled was taken. You did say sex offenders. You didn't say all prisoners. That is correct. So apparently you are not objecting to a distinction between classes of prisoners. No, Your Honor, you're, you're correct. And, again, that's consistent with the view that we took between the benefit and the sanction. Analysis. So there, is, there isn't a, 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 a comparative analysis as, as between classes of prisoners depending on their offense? No, Your Honor, okay. there's not. I apologize if I misspoke. No, I, I, I understood you the other way. That, that is that uh, you, you agree it would be an artifice, but, but if, uh, if the state did knock down all the sex offenders to level one two years before they get out, then, then you acknowledge your, your client wouldn't have a case? Potentially, yes. That is correct. Um, again, that's not what we have in place here, but, but that is correct. That is correct. The, the Fifth Amendment's a bedrock principle. Uh, this Court says it's the mainstay of the criminal justice system, and there's no more powerful piece of evidence than someone's confession. They ask a lot of Mr. Lyle and other sex offenders. They not only ask for the admission of guilt, but they ask for everything. Catalog and give me everything you want. And despite what the State says, there really isn't a great deal of confidentiality. These records can be subpoenaed. They have to turn this information over if someone were to make an admission about a child sexual offense. Um, further, these inmates are forced to discuss this stuff in group therapy sessions. There's, there's no confidentiality. And, and also to point out, the state has not appealed or contested that what it seeks is incriminating information. This information, the Fifth Amendment itself, is, is far too valuable that the state can go around and force people to give it up and to extract penalties and punishments for that. Thank you for your time. Thank you, Mr. Wildinger. Uh, Mr. McAllister, you have three minutes. Thank you, Mr. Chief Justice, and may it please the Court. I'd like to start, Justice O'Connor, by answering a question you raised. Can the state simply take away all the privileges? Absolutely not. We recognize at some point it becomes compulsive, but this Court has always treated the Fifth Amendment compulsion inquiry as contextual. And we're simply arguing that in prison, that's a very different context from being on the outside and losing a job or losing your law license. At some point, a Court could decide, if we took away everything from Mr. Lyle, that maybe that would be compulsive. So we're not saying we can take away everything, but what we're saying is what we're using here is mild in the way of incentives within a prison. We haven't taken away his right to spend money at the canteen, his right to have visitors, his right to earn money. We've limited them, but none of that has been taken away from him completely. That's saying with a cohort of prisoners, he'll go along for 10 years, all of them earning points and credits, and then after 10 years, we're all up to level three, and then, because he won't go in the program, he alone is pushed back to level one. And that's a big change. And he says that's taking yes. away something. Yes. But, I mean, in our view, there's an important penological reason for doing that. And it doesn't rise to the level of compulsion because we're in the prison setting. That's why we think Sandin is helpful here. But why wouldn't the same penological reason justify taking away all privileges? In other words, why did you make the concession you made at the beginning of your rebuttal? Because all I'm saying is at some point, even, even Sandin recognizes at some point things are atypical and they exceed the line. So although he could be moved to disciplinary segregation without a due process hearing, if he was put in solitary confinement, that might have been different. There is a line at which it becomes no, but he, too if much. He would put in solitary confinement, uh, it would be justifiable, if at all, because of a penological reason, the way he had behaved in prison, creating dangerous conditions, etc. Why isn't 
the, the rehabilitation of sex offenders who, if unrehabilitated, will go out into the community and repeat their crimes, just as important a penological reason, and why wouldn't it justify taking away all privileges? Because the text of the Fifth Amendment says no person shall be compelled, and the question is compulsion. And at some point, if we took away everything or we made him work 20 hours a day or we could do things to him that I think the Court would, would have to no, say. No, but you're saying, compelled. if I understand your argument, you're saying one reason why you should not characterize this as compulsion is the valid penological reason for doing it. That's part of My it. My suggestion is if there, uh, if, 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 if the state should say, look, the protection of these victims on the outside who are going to be preyed upon by this person if not rehabilitated is just as important as preventing people from setting fires in their cells. And therefore, if we take away all privileges to the fire setters, We've got an equally good penological reason to take away all privileges from the person who won't go into the program. And that, that I agree with. We do have Then you could take away all the privileges. Not all the privileges, because it has to rise to the level of compulsion. And if, if they are entitled to nothing in prison. The, that's the question. That's the question. <laughs> Go ahead. <laughs> that's all right. I mean, that is the question. And, and again, the point that, that was drawn out here on the, the distinction between it. Extend your time for two minutes, Mr. McAllister, because you really didn't have a chance to say much of anything. I'm All right. Thank, thank you, Mr. <laughs> Chief Justice. The, the distinction here between a loss of privilege and the granting of a benefit in the state's view is simply a semantic game. It the really, I mean, from the inmate's perspective, it just can't be any different. And if the notion is what we should have done is we should all treat them as, we should treat them all when they come in as poorly as we can, as long as we satisfy a constitutional minimum, treat them as poorly as we can, and then make them earn everything. If that's all it takes, we can go back and do that. But that certainly doesn't benefit inmates as a class, and it's certainly not how prisons are run at this time in this country. It would be a, a vast shift in the way prisons are administered. So that's really a semantic game. And the key inquiry here is, are we compelling them? Are we doing something sufficiently substantial to these inmates to override their will? and really force them to make these admissions, again, which are in the treatment context, not to law enforcement officials, confidentiality guidelines. We've never prosecuted someone for anything they've said in this program. And thank, thank you, Mr. McAllister. Thank you, Mr. The case Chief. is submitted. The Honorable Court is now adjourned until Monday next at 10 o'clock.